Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Welcome back, everyone, to How to Eat an Elephant, or as we like to call it. I am joined, as ever, by Megan and Emily, and it is a beautiful, brilliant morning here in Spokane, Washington. We're doing our very best to keep our wits about us and to resist the just the, the drag that was these five chapters of okay. War and Peace. I don't actually, I know that you think that they were tragic, and they were tragic. They were super was... tragic. You think Tolstoy has a problem. But... Most of what I think is that I was so delighted to be back with Pierre and to be done for now with Tolstoy's heavy philosophical meditations. Okay, that's that, fair. Like, that's perfect. Nothing oh, yeah. can get me down. I'm walking on sunshine. I'm <laughs> great. On sunshine. Yeah, I can speak. I can see that. I feel a healthy mixture of both because it's not that he stays entirely away from philosophy. There is another random bout with who is God and what is God and is life God? And I thought that was really, really frustratingly philosophical again. But it was with characters, which is the appropriate right. place for it. No, you're so right. <laughs> yeah. I realize it's like objectively stupid to suggest taking a red pen to one of the probably three or four greatest novels ever written, but I swear by all that's holy, it could be half the length. No, me too. I'm sitting it on my hands at this point. the length. Yep. Yeah. It's ridiculous. You've had a thousand pages, Tolstoy. What are we still doing here? I know. What are we still doing here? I know. But with the characters, I actually felt, I felt like you, Ian, that it was so tragic. I mean, we've spent so long with these characters and now they're starting to come to their ends. And some of them are just so tragic. Well, and it's all the good ones that are. I mean, like, it seems it seems like something about his point is related to only the good die young. You know, like <laughs> a Billy Joel pe- reference on this <laughs> fine <laughs> we got, morning. <laughs> yeah, we got Petya biting the dust in this episode just because he's too good. He couldn't possibly stick around. The world doesn't like good things. So he's got to die. Same thing with Platon. He's got to die. Also, die friendless and alone because Pierre, who one page earlier understood everything and was perfectly at peace with God himself and nature, can't can't continue being a friend to the guy. I mean, I just, it's not that Tolstoy's wrong in looking around at the world and saying suffering is a part of it. Suffering is one of the things about being a human being. He's absolutely right about that. But is it that there is no such thing as a happy ending? Because that's not a true thing to say about the human world. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. No, I don't either. But I can see why you would say it. I think that happiness is one of the things he's thinking on and whether it's possible. But the other thing that I thought these these five chapters in particular focused on was the nature of man, really specifically, and how man deals with suffering and what he thinks of himself in terms of his worth. He did that with characters that we love, but our passage ended with Napoleon and the French generals, basically with their tails between their legs leaving. And the line is, they felt that they were pathetic and vile people who had done a great deal of evil for which they now had to pay. And it's very heavy-handed in a historical sense, as he's talking about the French people, but I actually saw a little bit of that attitude in 
Platon crying about uh, basically paying for sins that weren't his, but I'm sure he basically says, but I'm sure that I'm paying for something. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a thought on man's value and whether he has to pay for his vileness. I thought that was also something he was thinking on. Sweet. Well, I mean, that definitely lends some perspective. And also, I mean, I'm griping and moaning over here because it's fun. Well, no, but I of do course. Think, but I do, I do think this is great. I mean, it's it's obviously brilliant. I just, I'm struggling through it like everybody else. Also, I think that chapter may be one beyond our selection for the day. Oh, shoot. Did I do it again? You guys, I was one off last time too, so I will be the first to, to repent and, and find a way to pay for my sins. But it's only logical that even if the chapter is one beyond where we were supposed to read for the day, it is consonant in theme. Well, it's valid because Platon tells that story about the the peasant who is put in prison right. for something that he didn't do. It's right. the same idea. That yeah. we're, one of the things we're wrestling with in this section is the problem of pain and suffering, the innocent suffering. Yeah. So let's dive into the to the line by line with that thought, the innocent suffering, because here we have we we get a moving picture of Petya's senseless stupid ridiculous death so like just to remind everybody of the scene the cossacks have swept down on this this french encampment and it doesn't it isn't painted as much of a battle the frenchmen that we encounter here are few in number are as bedraggled as the russian prisoners that they're carrying uselessly needlessly around the countryside mm-hmm. the the most striking image to me other than petya's actual death in this chapter was the when Petya's riding through the encampment and and sees a group of Russian soldiers and there's someone wailing pitifully from the middle of it and it's a lone Frenchman surrounded by like nine Russian dudes who's at the head of a pike and they're you know, menacing him and then threatening to kill him. That's the image that we get of the French in this chapter. So it's not battle. It's more of a foregone conclusion. It's a route. Yeah. Yeah. It's a route. Which is... Is what makes Petch's death so senseless. It exactly. was so unnecessary. Yeah, so unnecessary, so foolish, so senseless. If he would, if he would listen, frankly, he would listen to Denisov and do exactly what he was supposed to do, which is hang back, don't lose your head, don't run into the middle of all of this, hang back with me. Is what Denisov tells him. I see two things going on here. I see two different kind of branching conversations that are necessary to have. The one being senseless suffering which we'll get to later i think but the other being just who the question who is responsible for pitch's death and Mm. i see a lot of answers to that i I think the russian patriotism uh is is to blame for that nationalism is to blame and as much as it has educated petya to want to throw his himself into the dangerous parts of battle to earn glory for the fatherland um, well, and for himself too, right? And for himself. Yeah. I mean, human nature in mm-hmm. that sense is to blame. Yeah. But uh, I think the Rostov family might be to blame here. Uh, all the sins that we have in the past talked at length about with um, Papa Rostov and just it's the negative side of their generous gift, right? It, they don't have any common sense or, or gravity about them. It's kind of true. Megan, what do you think? Who, who, what answer would you give when we say who's responsible for Petya's death? Well, I'm sad about it, but I would say Petya, 100% Petya. Yeah. He has all of the information to make a good decision where this is concerned, but he's too young. And you can only be as old as you are, but it is his immaturity that kills him, from my perspective. 
Right. But it's great that you said it that way. You can only be as old as you are because my response would be, and I think that, and I'm, maybe I'm sniping at Tolstoy again, which is just my favorite sport, really. When we get to the end of this novel, I'm going to look back and I'm going to say, this was fantastic. Oh, I loved it. I read War and Peace and it was wonderful. Right? Yeah. In the middle of it, I'm going to snipe at Tolstoy. I think God is responsible for Petya's death hmm. because Tolstoy actually does have a handle on on Providence. And we've talked about it multiple times, right? Nothing happens outside yeah. of the providence of God. And one of the things I think he wants us to be engaging alongside our characters is, okay, I know you're up there, so what the heck, dude? What's happening down here? Well, I don't think that's a snipe. I think that's a very serious meditation he wants us to have. And it recalls Pierre's line that's coming up where he says, I realize that I was never more free. I mm-hmm. I was just as bound in my marriage to Helen as I am now in this shed. Right. I am bound. Yeah, this is the, so. Th- let's let's dive into this next chapter because it's. I, so I went along underlining. I have a little pencil, and I make notes in my margins while I'm reading. And I went along underlining, and then I couldn't. I couldn't stop because he wouldn't end the thought. And pretty soon, I right. had underlined every line on a whole. It's paragraph. a whole paragraph. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I was like, come on, Tolstoy. But it's beautiful stuff, and it se- really does seem like every single sentence adds to his meditation and his argument about just what Emily was saying about the the profound freedom and lack of freedom that are simultaneously present in the human experience. Mm-hmm. What did you guys draw out of this? Well, I'm not sure entirely what part you want. You're talking about the part that I was literally referencing. Yeah, I'm, t- I'm talking he's... about the paragraph that begins in captivity in the shed. Mm-hmm. Pierre had learned not with his mind, but with his whole being, his life, That man is created for happiness, that happiness is within him in the satisfaction of human needs and that all unhappiness comes not from lack, but from super superfluity. Good luck. Yeah, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) From superfluity. But now in these last three weeks of that march, he had learned a new and more comforting, more comforting truth. He had learned that there is nothing frightening in the world. Yep, that's great. And I have mixed feelings about that. I think it's. It's deeply connected. The reason you can't stop underlining is because that idea that there's nothing frightening in the world is because of what he says next, that there are limits in this world. There's a limit to how much freedom you can have. There's a limit to how much suffering you will endure before it ends. There's There are these helpful constructs around a man, and you could rage at them or you could delight in them, I think is what he's saying. And he gets to the end of that passage and he says, you know, he learned that when by his own will, it seemed that he'd married his wife, he had been no more free than now when he was locked in a stable. That decision was actually imposed on him, Tolstoy is arguing, by a greater force. And in it, there's some freedom to relax and let be. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well said. There is no way to read this paragraph without reading the whole thing. Right. <laughs> because it's it's all one thought. It just happens to be a, this is actually a pretty awesome microcosm of the novel. If you think I think about it, it for is. A second. Yeah. It's all one thought. It just happens to be 22 lines long. <laughs> well, this, I think this is the answer to how human beings can navigate the problem of suffering and, and recognition that it's not, there are limits to it. It's not going to get too bad. And he says, putting on my tight ballroom shoes, which was a great image, was just <laughs> as painful as my feet are are full of pain right now. Although he does end up saying that the feet are the kind of the thing are actually that, that so much out. worse. Yeah, <laughs> and this is what 
I think this is part of the reason why he's distancing himself from from Platon is that the um the suffering isn't particular to him or to Platon. And just as he had that meditation earlier on about how he could they he didn't want to get too attached to him and that was part of Kertiv's gift philosophy yeah. is that uh open-handedness without being attached. I think Pierre's practicing that here, but I I want to read these sections in light of actually the the chapter that came before the end mm-hmm. of our first chapter for the day after Petya dies, we get Denisov, my boy Denisov, who comes to find him in the battle and we're told uh he walks up and it says, Denisov did not reply. He rode up to Petya, got off his horse, and with trembling hands turned Petya's face towards him. It was stained with blood and mud and already turning pale. I'm used to something sweet, excellent raisins. Take them all, he recalled. And the Cossacks glanced around in surprise at the sound similar to a dog's barking, with which Denisov quickly turned away, went to the wattle fence, and caught hold of it. Among the Russian prisoners taken by Denisov and Dolokhov was Pierre Bezikov. And that's the end of the chapter. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, so many, so many thoughts. So many, that, thoughts. so many thoughts. First of all, that line at the end just—it's dropped in understatement. Uh, at understatement. Its best. Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote like, um, okay, in the margin. <laughs> yeah. Here's Pierre. We found him, but it's so understated with that same kind of distance that Pierre demonstrates in the next chapters. But then immediately contrasted to that is Denisov's not distance right his immediacy to Petya and his emotional response and we complained at length about Andre's dying and his response to his son and like this to me Denisov is way more acceptable and relatable and I'm not really entirely sure what Tolstoy is doing here in contrasting Denisov's response to Petya's death to Pierre's response to Clayton's death. Well, I have a knee-jerk response, but I don't know if it's going to be borne out by the novel. When Denisov is mourning Petya, he sounds like Natasha in tone. He's, um, it's whimsical and he's, it's sentimental and emotional and he's wailing, you know? And Pierre sounds like Andre. Andre, we were always hoping, would grow out of his distancing from other people and his uber-rational mentality and have a little heart. And he fell in love with Natasha, who's the beating heart of the novel. And this contrast made me think that for all his philosophizing, Tolstoy is leading Pierre on a journey and he's not done yet. So he's realizing all these things, but Pierre's always been realizing the next great truth from the very beginning. I don't know if if he has realized what Tolstoy would consider to be the ultimate truth yet. He might still be in process. And the contrast with Denisov here made me made me feel that way. Like he hasn't fully come to bringing the rational truth of accepting the universe as it is together with that Russian spirit and and wholehearted love for your neighbor. What do you guys think about that? I love that. I hope that you're right. It Denisov cries like a dog barking, which sounds like, um, I mean, we're already in this section with little Gray, who follows Platon around. And we were told earlier that Pierre has become kind of like this dog rolling around in the mud. And, and that seems to be a positive connection. Mm-hmm. Right. On the other hand, 
I don't know what to do with the fact that um, Platon kind of has been held up as the hero of the novel thus far. I mean, he is the the primary example, and he's the one who suggested this kind of open-handed distance. He did. This is so fun. He did, but to push back on that a little bit, he wanted personal connection at the end. He wanted you right. to come over and look into his eyes and speak to him as he died. He wanted connection. So when Pierre says stupid dog to the dog that's howling, you think that that is not supposed to be no, I think he's doing a proper response. Me too. Yeah. I had the same thought. Although it's supposed to be connected, I think, to the sentence where at the end of page 1060, I Kid you not, my friend. <laughs> 1,060 pages. Um, only now did Pierre understand the full force of human vitality and the saving power of the shifting of attention that has been put in man, similar to the safety valve in steam engines, which releases the extra steam as soon as the pressure exceeds a certain norm. I think the scene that where, where he can't bring himself to go over to Platon is that safety valve working in him. And it isn't that this death isn't going to come home to him, it isn't that it isn't going to do its work in his psyche. He just can't handle it right then. He's trying and, to cope. Yeah, and he comes back around to it by the end of our selection for today. And so that I think those things are supposed to be... He's we're in supposed process. to read those together. Yeah, he's in process. And is it wrong that he didn't go over to Playtime? Well, absolutely. Yeah, well, I think that yeah. was really foolish. That's but, a decision you can never take back. Yeah, but at the same time, I think Tolstoy looks kindly, or at least with some element of forgiveness on... Whatever it is a human being has to do to survive. He does explain Pierre's choice to us. He says uh, a couple scenes before the end, before Kartiev's end, he says, Pierre was afraid of his pity for this man and wanted to go away, but there was no other fire. So he's afraid of how much compassion he does feel. And that's why we love Pierre. He is actually deep feeling. And that's one of the wonderful things about him. But you got to consider his circumstance. I don't think that's a safe way to be as a prisoner of war. He's trying to guard against his gift, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And he, he takes in all of the details, right? He hears the shot clearly. And then his his brain, which I think Tolstoy has been has been suggesting is unfree as much as it is free. Mm -hmm. He's been he's been meditating on this for a whole chapter now. His brain immediately says, you were going to think and calculate out how long a march <laughs> is and how many days we have until we do. Why don't we get back to work on this super important task we were doing over here in the background just to shield him from yeah. the grief that's happening? I don't get the sense that that's a decision. Um, I think that's I think that's human nature reaction thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, even the description, the comparison to an, an engine with a, a steam valve, yeah. it's very impersonal, the way that his body is functioning right then. It's true. And then it, when he does remember it, I think I might just, yeah, I might just read this. This this will take a second. It's it's roughly a page, but, but it's the, it's all, been, if we can think of it as everything has been building and building and building and building and be, and because Pierre is such a great soul and and such a brilliant mind it's all building not just with physical pressure and with suffering right bodily suffering but it's also building in his soul it's building in his mind and in his heart and he's he's trying to understand everything that he's coming across rather than just to live it and he can't help doing that that's how he's made and we finally see the pressure valve release here at, here at the end of chapter 
uh, 15 of part, volume 4, part 3, <laughs> on page 1065. <laughs> so he sits down at the fire and he sees the dog. The dog shows up. Little Gray shows up. Who's purple? Gray is purple? <laughs> so confusing. Me. I thought that too. Is this a violet dog? Lavender. Is this a violet dog? <laughs> I've never seen a violet dog. <laughs> okay. So Pierre says in response to the dog showing up, Ah, it's come. Ah, play. He began but did not finish. In his imagination, suddenly, simultaneously, connecting among themselves, memories emerged of the gaze with which Platon had looked at him, sitting under the tree, of the shot he had heard from that spot, of the howling of a dog, of the criminal faces of the two Frenchmen who had run past him, of the smoking gun in the hand, of the absence of Karatev at this halt. And he was ready then to understand that Karatev had been killed. But at the same moment, a memory emerged in his soul coming from God knows where. And I think maybe we could give different emphasis to that. God knows where. God knows where. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Of an evening he had spent with a beautiful Polish woman in the summer on the balcony of his house in Kiev. And still not connecting the memories of that day and not drawing any conclusions about them, Pierre closed his eyes. And the picture of summer nature mixed with the memory of bathing of the liquid, wavering ball. And he sat somewhere into the water so that the water closed over his head. Before sunrise, he was awakened by loud, rapid gunshots. And shouting French soldiers ran past him. Les Cossacks! One of them shouted. And a moment later, Pierre was surrounded by a crowd of Russian faces. For a long time, Pierre could not understand what was happening to him. On all sides, he heard his comrades' shouts of joy. Brothers, my dear ones, my darlings, the old soldiers cried out, weeping, embracing the Cossacks and Hussars. The Hussars and Cossacks surrounded the prisoners and hastened to offer them one clothes, another boots, another bread. Pierre sobbed, sitting among them, and could not utter a word. He embraced the first soldier who came up to him and kissed him, weeping. Oh, it's just so beautiful. I have so many thoughts. Hit me with your thoughts. Well, my first thought is that image of the Polish woman and the beautiful summer evening turns very quickly into not just swimming, not just bathing, but um, a, like a baptism image. Mm-hmm. The water yeah. coming together over Pierre's head and it's, it's soothing, but also it's a, it's a submission of sorts and he wakes up to new life. At the end of that dream, where he has gone under the water, which is usually in in Christian culture, a depiction of death, right? The absolute submission of your will. He wakes up and he's been he's been delivered. Yeah, that's beautiful. Great. And it's connected, obviously, to that m- moment with that he re- where he remembers his school teacher talking about the ball and and talking about human the idea of reflection. Right as it swells, as the as the little water globules swell and swell and swell, they reflect their creator more and more and more until finally they swell beyond their capabilities and dissolve into the whole again. That's that's all baptism, baptismal yeah, too. I that's think good. Yeah. that helps explain the Caritiv's little parable. I think the guiltlessness of suffering. The the whole world is the baptismal waters. Therefore, the whole world. And that's the suffering, right? The suffering is the submission of one's will. And that's why Kirtiv finds joy in it, right? The passing through of the waters. I think it's, uh, we didn't read ahead and make 
make well, Megan did. Except me. No. Yeah, we had to call me out, dude. <laughs> I know. I meant I meant we Sorry. didn't plan uh. this. Did, we didn't plan this. We didn't right. we right. didn't say, oh, this is gonna be an awesome five chapter chunk. But it did turn out really well because I think there's a natural landing place for Tolstoy's ideas right here. He gets to make a maybe his ultimate statement about human nature and about this war and about Pierre's growth as a character using the image of Petya dying, bringing us two different perspectives in Denisov and Dolokhov's responses to the war. I mean, it's, it all builds to a pretty satisfying climax right here. And then he wraps it up for us. He gives us one paragraph where he says, don't forget, this is what I did over the last five yeah, pages, it's a great pages summary. or so. Yeah, it's really good. Really good stuff. Yeah, we were sad last time that we hadn't kept reading to find out the end of Peccio, but I think it really worked out because yeah. it ends. I'm going to read it because I really want to say this word to just see how it goes. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> and our section ends, Denisov with a gloomy face, taking off his papaka. <laughs> <laughs> Followed behind some Cossacks who were carrying to a pit dug in the garden the body of Petya Rostov. I love it. It was somehow jaunty the way you yeah. said the word taking off his papaka. I, uh, it was I, uh, like papaya, but more interesting. Ruined the pathos of that moment, but oh. I just couldn't help it. <laughs> well, the pathos is there, though, because... Like you said, it's a summary of everything that's happened in these chapters. Dolokhov is being brutal. He's counting the French prisoners as he, you know, basically, I think, files them think off to shoot them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yep. no. He already like said on the previous page, we're taking none. Yeah. So he's just being bloodthirsty. And in the background, Denisov, our most human of characters, or most dog-like, however you want to see this in the moment, is carrying Petya Rostov into the garden to bury oh, him word. in the garden. Yeah. And that's really beautiful. What yeah. if that really is Denisov's whole point in the story? That's why he has his little speech impediment. He like growls like a dog. He barks. Yeah. He barks. That's great. He's also faithful. And yeah, I think that could be an image that he intended. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I also think it's significant that Petch is buried in the garden. If we are kind of thinking as the water um, of the water as baptismal imagery, it would make sense that the garden would be kind of Edenic. I just, what, what that makes me think of is the idea that war doesn't happen somewhere else. And, and especially when we're reading stories about bygone conflicts, it's easy to think of war as something that happens apart from or away from or out in the, out in the other place, but it doesn't, it happens in, it happens in someone's backyard, real yeah. life. Yeah. It's in someone's backyard. That the whole, and I think it, there's a comment in there somewhere about the unity of the world and of human experience. The world's all one place, and human beings are all of a kind. And I think Tolstoy wants us to feel kinship with the Russians and the Frenchmen, the men and the women of the story, the the slave and free, and the rich and the poor. And he wants to remind us all that eventually we're going to be buried in somebody's garden. But it's a garden. Yeah, I think it's important not to gloss over the garden image because it, it is so redemptive, you know? Yeah, oh, I agree, absolutely. If we don't emphasize that, it's the, it's the this is the most brutal line in the whole story because what Denisov has said about Petya is a, a lament. He says, basically, here's the kind of boy that he was. Excellent raisins, take them all. You know, here's the best that I have 
here's my unspoiled generosity. Here's what I have to give to the world. And the God who puts limits on our universe took him. I mean, that would be so heavy handedly brutal. And yet Tolstoy pulls it back at the last minute and buries him in the garden. Mm. Just, just within inches of Pierre being delivered. Delivered. Yeah. Right. I mean, we just taught a tale of two cities not that long ago. So like recalled to life. Recalled right? to life. It's both. I, I would submit, hopefully, the novel bears this out that both Pierre and Petya, they are supposed to be a foil image, right? Their name, Petya, is named after Pierre. Yeah, both of them have been recalled to life in this moment. I think so too. So I have a question. I would love to hear what you guys think of this little meditation of Pierre's from the beginning of this chapter, chapter 15. He says, life is everything. Life is God. Everything shifts and moves and this movement is God. And while there is life, there is delight in the self-awareness of the divinity. To love life is to love God. The hardest and most blissful thing is to love this life and one's suffering and the guiltlessness of suffering. So this, I mean, for me, recalls Andre, love is God. Now, Pierre says life is God. What does Pierre mean? And how does this relate back to what Andre was saying earlier? Well, I don't want to, I don't want to table any real discussion. But when I was reading this, I was so, so frustrated. The way that I was in high school when I tried to be a student of logic and was just the worst at it. It's just close enough to math that I just suck (laughs) at logic. And this felt like a logical fallacy. It felt like to say that life is God is like, what is it called? Something about the consequence, asserting the consequence. It felt like a logical fallacy where the things were out of order. You could say that God is in life. He is present in your life, but you can't say that life is God. That's not the same. People can live a whole life without any reference to God. We know that. So it feels upside down and backwards. I agree with that. I think it's a weird mixture, though, because what I get from the rest of the passage after that, as it goes along, is echoes of of the Apostle Paul in various places. It is for freedom that we are set free. Um, there, there's a radical selflessness that he advocates here as the best way of living that I think is very Christian. Uh, I can't remember the quote. I'm going to mess it up. But I I think it's Martin Luther that talks about the idea of the true Christian, not thinking less of themselves, but thinking of themselves less. Mm-hmm. That, that sounds to me what Tolstoy is orbiting right this right in this passage. He's basically talking about, listen, here's how you do in life love everything around you realize that it's not about you. And so even when you're suffering, it's not because of anything you did. It's just a part of life, which is, which is good because it's God. And so love it. And all of that involves, um, involves kenosis involves self emptying, right? He obviously wants to shock us. Yeah. Look at you little, little theology theologian. He obviously wants to shock us by switching, by inverting it in the way mm-hmm. that frustrated you, Megan. Right? right. Because it, it worked. He had me in the palm of his hand. <laughs> well, I was pissed. <laughs> saying God is love is Saint John, right? God is life. Uh, that's also biblical. But he he switches it in a way that is unsettling, because I would agree, Megan. Like life is God. That sounds idolatrous. Mm-hmm. But 
I wonder what his purpose is in in shocking us in that way. It's almost like to say God is life, there might be a temptation to say, okay, well, real life is out there. It's beyond me. It has, I'm involved in suffering here and this is not life. I am, I'm placing all my hope in a future life. And that can lead to, to, um, gnosis, right? Like the, the severe separation of mind and body. But to say life is God draws the person back into the immediate present. And I think that there's a danger to that, but also he's trying to, have Pierre like Pierre has never historically been very good about engaging with his present and that seems to be what he's getting at here Hmm. that even the suffering even this this tangible thing that we all wish to escape this is where God is found right here well no doubt we'll get more of this conversation out of Tolstoy, because we're going to get more of everything that he has ever said. About we'll get more and more and there still more. more. I'm not convinced this novel has an end. I think <laughs> maybe he wasn't long on conclusions, but he sure was long on denouement. He was long on everything. <laughs> magically else. find you get to like page 1250 or whatever it is, and magically find that you're back at the beginning of the book. And yeah, and he's just, like, and we're going time again. Time is a flat circle. Time, time's <laughs> a flat circle. Oh my goodness, you guys, you're so brilliant. It's really fun to talk with you about this book. Um, thank you. Thank you both for your thoughts. And thank you listeners for joining us on our journey through Russia. Mm-hmm. All of it. It's whole history and all of the people who live there. We are so <laughs> glad that you, <laughs> you decided to do this with us. Please join the conversation. If you would, we'd love to hear from you uh, on Facebook. And we're, we're in there poking fun at each other and at Tolstoy and just love and life. Come be friends. And until we meet again on a future episode, bon appetit. Bon Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.